2003 was the moneymaker effect. Correct. I was, uh, I think I was a junior in college and I immediately just dove into this. We had already been playing a little bit here and there uh, with the baseball team on the bus. Well, now it was just popularized everywhere. Everyone wanted to play and I had a head start because I understood the game. And this is Matt Berkey, American high stakes poker player, the guest for this episode. More than 15 years playing the game. Originally from Pittsburgh, now living here in Las Vegas, and founder of the Academy Software Y. My name is Rigel, your host of Rigel Blood Podcasts, and this is my very first podcast in English. Thank you for being listening to the first episode. And well, with all this said, let's talk with Matt Berkey. Matt Berkey, dude, such a great pleasure to have you here uh, in my very first podcast in English. It's, my, my, it's, it's an honor to have you here today, and thank you for your time. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate you having me. I'm happy you came to our headquarters. <laughs> uh, yeah, inviting the headquarters of yeah. Saul for Why. Well, um, I want to start from the beginning. Okay. How was, or when was that moment when Berkey met the poker game? Um, so I messed around with poker a little bit in high school. I was never much of a gambler, like at least not in games of chance, really. Uh, I was never into sports betting or anything like that. But when I felt like I could control the outcome, I, I was like one to kind of double down on my own uh, I, I guess, belief in myself or whatever. So myself and a couple of my friends, uh, my good friend, Brian, who actually works for us now, uh, we just started playing like quarter stakes, uh, really, really nickels. But, um, you know, we were messing around and most of the games we played were like some variations of stud because okay. it was the mid nineties, uh, rounders was like just being released. <laughs> okay. And no limit holder wasn't really that big of a, a thing yet. So we played a lot of, Your typical home games, like replace the pot games, three, five, seven, okay. uh, Chicago, whatever. And I just, for some reason, had a fair aptitude for it. And I don't know what it is. Like looking back, it's hard to kind of like understand because I know so much about poker now okay, that yeah. I can't fathom how I was winning back then outside of just good <laughs> luck. And maybe it was just variance. How old were you at that time? Uh, I think we first started playing at like 14. Oh, you were a kid. Yeah, this is just carried through like our teenage years. And then by the time I got to college, No Limit Hold'em it kind of started to boom. So uh, I was on the baseball team. We would travel a lot and we'd play in the back of the bus and <laughs> you know, I did well. And um, you have any good relationship with numbers or stats before playing this game, these kind of games? Um, not so much in high school. I mean, I have a math aptitude, I guess. Okay. Uh, I graduated with a computer science degree and, uh, you know, effectively a math minor. Uh, it's just kind of, they go hand in hand with each other. So I, I have a reasonable understanding of, uh, you know, how the math of this game works. I'm by no means like a mathematician <laughs> or uh, how to a, apply to the game or something like that. Yeah, that yeah, time. like a theoretical physicist or anything like that. But, <laughs> um, you know, I, I feel pretty confident in my ability to uh, understand like the rules that govern poker. So it was basically like a teenager's game. Yeah. But you play for money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, it would be like five to $20 that we <laughs> buy it for. And uh, we had this penny jar because we didn't have chips. Okay. So each penny represented a quarter. Okay. And, and, you know, we would just use those as our betting chips. Uh, effectively, everything was fixed betting. We didn't know much about No Limit at the time. But um, we also didn't know anything about uh, table stakes. Okay. So, you know, uh, it, it, was, it was some bastardized version of spread limit, to be honest. Okay. So nobody really ever, like, went all in because we didn't know that that existed. We oh, thought right, that okay. like if you wanted to bet a hundred dollars, then you'd have to come out of pocket and bet a hundred dollars. Oh, okay. So you, you you prefer like your own set of rules in that in those cases. Kind of. We were just ignorant <laughs> to like the way that the game was supposed to be uh formulated in a way such that like risk wasn't such a pressing thing. We're talking uh about what year is this? So this would have started in like 1996. Like 1996. You don't yeah. have kind of 
pretty much no information on right about not the at game. all i mean the games we were playing were were so mm-hmm. laughable like everything had a wild card <laughs> uh you know we would play this game called follow the queen where um it was a, it was a version of seven card stud but if you were dealt a queen then the next card dealt to you was going to be wild and okay. it would change street by street it, it was fun it was a good gamble uh i can't imagine there was a lot of skill involved yeah definitely and moving forward in the in that uh scenario when you realize like well i I can make money with this yeah uh when that happened and how was that moment when you said like you know what i'm gonna go all in with this and i'm gonna be i want to be a poker player one day um yeah i I mean it's kind of an interesting story i guess Uh, so i I, 2003 was the moneymaker effect correct i was uh i think i was a junior in college and I immediately just dove into this. We had already been playing a little bit here and there uh, with the baseball team on the bus. Well, now it was just popularized everywhere. Everyone wanted to play. And I had a head start because I understood the game. So, um, you know, I dove in. I, I was playing like $20, $50 buying games and doing really well, making a few hundred dollars here and there to the point where uh, when I finally got the courage, I went and played a couple um, local casino games that were like about an hour drive. And the first year or so, I think I made like $6,000, which as a college junior is it's a bunch even, of money. <laughs> yeah. And even like with my background, I had never seen $6,000 before. So like this was, oh, really? okay. this was a lot of money to me. Um, and, you know, it, it just kind of became understood that like I was the guy to beat when it came to these games locally. Oh, okay. Um, but it didn't matter. I still wanted to play baseball professionally. I really thought that, that was the path I was going to go down. Eventually that fizzled out and I kind of had to make a hard choice of like, okay, well, are you going to give poker a go or are you actually going to do the thing that you never want to do, which is go into the workforce? Mm. And despite having a computer science degree and being qualified, I guess, um, I never saw myself as in an office. In a, yeah. In a COVID call. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just kind of went all in and uh, never really had to look back. How old were you at that moment? Uh, 22, I guess. Uh, so the first six months after college graduation, I tried to get signed to a professional baseball team. Okay. And just, uh, you know, I would make final cuts and just ultimately never came to be. So, um, by the end of that year, I just kind of was like, okay, like it's now or never. And it was, uh, 2005. I just said, all right, I'm going to give this a shot. 2005. Yeah. Started playing like, you know, 40 hours a week and just doing really well. Uh, I started playing online or uh, who was it? Online was my vice. Um, okay. I crushed live poker. I did, I've did. i always been like a live guy. I've done really well in that okay. arena. I just have like some sort of natural aptitude for exchanging information with people, I think. But uh, when it came to online, that was a different Different, different monster. <laughs> and it wasn't that the games were tougher. I mean, we're talking about 2005. Nobody yeah. knew anything about anything. It was more so that there was so much available. Right, I would go from playing like a five hundred dollars sit and go to whatever the biggest cash game was to short stacking PLO and like trying all these things with the arrogance that I'm better than mm. the field. And first, the latter the latter was very unfounded. I don't know that I was better than anybody looking back. <laughs> uh, but secondly, I was very short on money with doing all this stuff. Okay, you know, I didn't have fifty thousand playing five hundred dollars sit and goes. I had like five. <laughs> okay. And it's like, I would just have these rules where it's like, okay, I'll play two $500 sit and goes a day. And I did well. I, I did shockingly well. And then I would make up these rules where it's like, okay, I'll short stack 1020 for two buy ins today. Uh, and I'll buy in for $800 total. And, you know, I was lucky that I was good enough to overcome the terrible money management mistakes I was making. <laughs> But to conceptualize this, uh, Because I think people now like would look at that and be like, that's so irresponsible. You're a degenerate, whatever the case may be. But it was the wild, wild west. Correct. That was that was another moment. In this yeah, story. it was, you know, 2005, like nobody was good at this game at Correct. all. And variance was largely dictating who won. So you were going to suffer through it no matter how well ruled you were. And really, I, I, Tom Marchese and I kind of discussed this uh, in 2016 when I played the Super High Roller Bowl with him. We were basically just saying like, The collection of people in that room were the people who either were lucky enough to run it up off of one of their first deposits mm-hmm. or had enough hundred to thousand dollar reloads over Correct. and over throughout the course of their life to the point where they could get past the sheer amateur nature of the game Correct. and actually examine it through a studied lens. Yeah, it was, it was a different 
Well, that was a different time in the in the poker history, and every everybody who started playing poker like seriously at that time, yeah, uh, we felt. I bet everybody felt like, "Oh, I'm crushing it here," but yeah. you really don't know what you're doing. Yeah, right? yeah, there was. Definitely a lot of people losing, but <laughs> a lot. there was uh, a lot of people winning too. And more than, it, it, more than it's conceivable, right? Like win rates back then were just astronomical and you could do the impossible. Yeah. You can make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year playing one, two, no limit. And like, that's <laughs> just impossible now. Yeah. Um, at that time, where were you living? Uh, so I was still in Erie PA, which is where I went to college and okay. I would be traveling to like Pittsburgh for underground games. I would go to... Uh, Salamanca, New York, or Niagara Falls for casino games. Um, and this went on until about 2008, whenever I decided to finally move to Vegas. Okay. And what happened when you decided to, okay, I tried with baseball, I got my degree, but you know what? This didn't work for me mm -hmm. very well. I'm going to go uh, with the poker. I'm going to try to make a career from that. What happened with your environment like you know family friends sure. because at that moment was like you you thinking like a kind of alien like nobody was right you know pursuing that career yeah I, i mean i think like so brian and i did it together we went to high school together uh he dropped out of college and moved in uh to my apartment shortly thereafter so like we've been on this trajectory together and we come from a tiny little town we graduated with like 55 people um so it was nice to have somebody there as like uh, a, you know, a, a relatable source. Correct. Who's coming from the exact same background that uh, is ultimately your support system. But on top of that, um, I'm just lucky. Like my family's always really trusted in me and it, they've always just encouraged me to do what I feel is best. Uh, just believing that I'll land on my feet. So once I was able to like come back and demonstrate some level of success, uh, I mean, it, at my peak before moving to Vegas, I had like $65,000, which was astronomical because probably more money than anyone in my family had ever seen. <laughs> um, and, you know, before I moved to Vegas, I actually kind of lit a lot of that on fire. But again, it was just part of the growth process. And I, I don't think anybody really, my friend's family or other, kind of doubted that uh, if I failed in this endeavor, I would land on my feet and find something else. And when, when you decided to move to Vegas to come here and play poker, it was... The, the main reason was like, you know what? Poker is equal Vegas uh, and mostly at that time. Yeah. Or I have an opportunity there. Let's try to do this and see what happens. Yeah. I mean, I was very resistant to moving out here. I oh, hate really? It. Yeah. It, <laughs> it just doesn't drive with like who I am as a person or my lifestyle or anything like that. I love Pittsburgh. I wanted to be, you know, in a local rec baseball league during the summer with my friends from college and i wanted to do like more of the the socially acceptable uh path without okay. actually diving into the traditional path of having a nine to five and getting married young and all this other stuff um but the games just started to dry up and it was very clear like i was capable of beating 10 20 plus but i was stuck playing like small one three games ah, because you don't have those kind of game in your right uh, yeah they were great for like a three or four year window, but they're very small communities. So eventually the money dries up. You can't get the games anymore. And it's like, well, I want to, you know, I, I see a path to making a lot of money in this game and I want to strike while the iron's hot. It seems like Vegas is the Mecca for this. So I guess like I'm going to have to kind of sacrifice a little bit of my comfort zone and lifestyle and just get out there and do what needs to be done. And you're talking about 2008, mm -hmm. you say, right? Yep. How was the, the, the poker community and game here in Vegas, you, you used to have big games or you used to have like a middle games, but a bunch of traffic. In it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was the stuff dreams are made of. I don't think we'll see it again the mm -hmm. way that it was. Maybe we will though. I don't know. I think there could be a resurgence at the low to mid stakes level. But when I first moved out here, Jamie Gold was running a, a game at the Venetian. So for everybody who thinks like private games are new, <laughs> This was 2007, 2008. Correct. Jamie Gold and um, I can't recall. Oh, Gabe Thayer were organizing a private 2550 game at the Venetian once a week, every Tuesday. So they don't, they, they didn't have any poker room. It was a private game in uh, the casino. So or? the Venetian, yeah, the Venetian used to have this area called the Salon. Okay. And it was their version of like Ivy's room. It was like behind glass right. walls. Okay. And they would just organize this game. And, you know, they weren't doing anything illegal. They would just create a wait yeah. list a week out and then they would organize this game. So, 
Uh, I was always had my nose against the glass, kind of watching, waiting <laughs> to get in there. But, uh, you know, there would be anywhere from six to 15 uncapped 510 games across the city. Wow. Okay. And it's like, you know, they're playing big. They're like, playing seriously. Yeah. I mean, uh, for, I think for like from 2008 to 2010, when I was mostly playing 510, uh, I, I never played cap. Very rarely would I go to Bellagio. Um, so almost all of those hours were uncapped. And I think I was averaging like something in the neighborhood of $180 an hour, which is probably pretty unattainable in a capped game. Yeah. Uh, the, the stakes are just much smaller. And also in today's environment, like games are a lot more tight aggressive. Uh, the cap decreases the size of the potential pots that could be played, et cetera, et cetera. Money was free back then. It was flowing. Uh, I can remember one hand in particular. It was in a 510 game. Uh, I lost a 20K pot all in on the flop with top set of 10s on 10, 6, 3, 2 clubs versus king 10 of clubs. <laughs> wow. Just got in $10,000. I mean, that's hard to do. $10,000. Yeah, so it's like multiple bets went in post-flop. Uh, I'm shoving with the absolute nuts and I'm getting called by just a draw. Um, and, you know, I lost that pot, whatever. I, I remember another memorable pot where I played a 25K pot with kings versus ace-king all in pre-flop in a 5-10 game. Wow. And it's just like, you know, this was just pretty common. Yeah. There was, there was a lot of recreational players, I can say. Sort of. I mean, both those hands were against pros. Um, I think what it really was, was that, and, and this is what I would like the audience to kind of better understand, because I think a lot of people are, are just being exposed to poker now. That we have the vloggers and the podcast and, you know, it's, it's expanding the audience, but the history isn't really told all that well. That's correct. We didn't have a path, right? Like in, in a lot of regards, my generation and the generation before it, are pioneers of what this current generation is able to latch onto. Mm -hmm. We didn't have pros to look up to outside of like Negranu and Esfandiari and guys like that, but they were unattainable, right? Yeah. They were unreachable. Social media wasn't big yet. So they weren't telling us how to live our life as poker players and how the grind works. And they don't want to either. Right, right. <laughs> they didn't tell us about the suffering and the peaks and the valleys and all this other stuff, right? So outside of not knowing what it takes to be a professional poker player, there was nobody passing along information on how to play the game, right? Like two plus two was the best source at that point, but training videos <laughs> weren't really out. Uh, you know, you had to do your own study and nobody even knew what the hell they were studying. So basically you go with your own path. You don't have any recipe to follow. Right. And I think the majority of people really just studied um, risk aversion mm. uh, from the standpoint of, I think back to those early strategies and how they developed. And everything was framed around, I don't want to risk too much, mm. right? So it was, it was in a large way, um, you know, a lot of slow playing, a lot of limping, a lot of not like three bet ranges were like just Queens plus and that's it. <laughs> three bets just never happened. People were very happy to go six and seven ways to see a flop, play bingo, try to make the best hand. And they all had this like idea that, they were better than everyone else at knowing when their hand was good, right? Yeah. I went the exact so they, opposite. they're waiting for that spot and yeah. that spot only. Right. And that just leads to a lot of loose money because people are going to make second best hands over and over and over again. So I kind of went the other route. I looked at risk aversion from the standpoint of what if we didn't care? Like in an ideal world, what would be the dream uh, poker player? Like what would create the best poker player on earth? And the answer was always, he has infinite funds. Mm -hmm. If he had infinite money and didn't care about one iota of risk, he would just be able to always pull the trigger and make the right play. So I kind of like started to develop my thinking around, I'm going to be the most aggressive player in the game and I'm going to be the loosest player in the game and I'm going to put totally the opposite of the, the, the regular price. Yeah, yeah, it's just like, this is just a giant game of monetary chicken. Correct. Right, and I think that I can apply enough pressure where people will bend. And uh, when that failed was against people who would outgamble me. And that's like what we'd see with like the Ace-King and the Tens. And granted, like, you know, I'm just running bad in that spot. But also it took me a lot of time to get to the point where I could actually get it in with those Kings preflop for mm -hmm. $12,000 in a 5-10 game. Because it's like you're just supposed to see Aces there. Exactly. And um, I can see from the story that you're telling me 
your background and your at, at this at this point of the story, your your game is based in cash games. Yeah. Or you you used to play tournaments at the same time. And what was what was the tournament community in uh, the states or even in Las Vegas right. wasn't this big? And 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 I bet. But you used to play just cash games, and the tournaments were like something different, or play both and try to make big money playing tournaments cash was like uh i guess cash would be like dinner and tournaments were like a dessert okay a painful dessert though like one where <laughs> painful dessert. you know a very rich Salty. one where it's like you eat it and you're you're so happy you're eating it but then 10 minutes afterwards it's nothing but regret <laughs> And like that was so good imagine. Yeah, that was just the way that I saw them for a long time because like you just don't win very often. And at the time right. I was winning in cash always. Right. Okay. It's like you might win like at that time you might win like seven out of ten sessions, eight wow. out of ten sessions. Yeah, you have you that just, feeling. Yeah, you just can't lose. And then you go to tournaments, it's just like you can't win. <laughs> totally opposite um, sensation. Right. But the tournament community was actually pretty large and healthy because of online. So um from 2009 to 2010, I strictly grinded online tournaments just because I had gone broke and um, I, I needed an influx of cash. And it was very easy to get backing on there. My good friend, Brian Hanks, was crushing. He kind of took me under his wing, uh, gave me a backing deal. And within a year, I had made like 280000 Wow. Okay. So it's like, okay, this is great. I never want to do this again because it actually felt like a nine to five. Yeah. You know, you'd wake up at 9 a.m. every day, go to the gym, come back. And then you're just on your computer from 11 to 1 every mm-hmm. single day. Just regging and regging and regging and, and firing. And, you know, you win a tournament, you don't even feel great about it. It's just like, okay, that's today's check. Now let's do it all again tomorrow. So I was happy to get out of that cycle. <laughs> um, but live tournament poker was really, really healthy. There was just a big disparity, uh, or disparity rather, between uh, the, the, the upper buy-ins and then everything else. Mm. So if you went to a stop, like a WPT stop, the main event was going to be 10K. Okay. And then they would run like three to 10 prelims that would range from like a thousand dollar buy-in to like $5,000. Okay. And it would lean heavier on the bigger buy-ins. So like good tournament pros, like the guys that were on TV and everything, it was like the high roller community is now. Mm -hmm. It was the same 200 people playing all of the main events, all of the prelims. And then at the 1K level, you would see an influx of like guys like me who are playing 510 and are used to losing $1,000 in a day and will take a shot. Correct. So it was hard until the Venetian released their deep stack, which was, I believe, in 2011, I think. Oh, no, they, they, actually, it might have been, it might have been earlier. It might have been like 2008. Eight? Okay. Yeah. They were the only game in town. So they were the only place where you could find moderate buy-ins between like $300 and $2,000 that would draw a big crowd. Talking about... Cash or tournaments? Tournaments, tournaments. Oh, okay. And they crushed it out of the gate. Uh, it, it definitely was 2008 because I remember the first thing that happened when I moved to Vegas was I played a $500 deep stack event at the Venetian and chopped it with one of my friends for like 30K. So that gives you a good idea of like how big these things were getting. It was wow. a $500 buy-in in first place was probably like 45000 Wow. A big deal. Yeah. So moving forward to that moment, I can... Uh, I I have here you in uh, 2013. You made third in a World Series of Poker event, yep. uh, making almost oh, two hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. And moving a little bit forward now, in uh, after three years, you make fifth in the high roller bowl, yep. making now seven figures. Mm-hmm. At that moment, that was a shift to your career or you were coming from making, you know, that that kind of money in your cash games yeah. or that was the moment when you, wow, this is now big. How was it for your career? And I want to know from the, you know, the poker player perspective yeah. and the human being perspective yeah. because now you have like maybe how many years maybe five nine years living in vegas like a poker player and this happened to you yeah so i I guess backtracking a little bit to kind of frame out what you're saying the only time that i was lucky enough to experience something of such good fortune that i was overwhelmed by it was in 2010 i made a deep run in the main event 
Okay. And there's just nothing on earth that can compare to the idea of getting that close to $10 million or $8 million, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I finished 41st for 240000 I think. Wow. And at the time, uh, that trumped my biggest score by about 7x. I think my biggest cash prior to that was like 35000 Wow, like big chiff. Big so um, it, was, it was a huge life-changing moment for me. And that, when it's a life-changing moment, it allows you to take a step back and just be like really reflective of what got you here, how important this is, uh, how big of an opportunity it will be moving forward and everything else under the sun. 2013, the final table that you mentioned, uh, that summer was very important in and of itself. I came into the summer broke and I ended up making three final tables for a little over half a million. Wow. So it was a massive influx. Again, I get to like kind of reflect after the fact and be like, wow, like I, I went from nothing to something quickly. But the difference is, at that point, I had been playing professionally for almost 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you kind of just chalk that more up to, well, I'm on the right side of variance where I had been on the wrong side for a while. And the same thing with the Super High Roller Bowl, right? It paralleled with the cash games I was playing. I was playing nosebleed cash games where I'm changing seven-figure pots on the regular. Yeah. So getting fifth was actually disappointing, right? Okay. It's like, not in the sense that uh, it's not better than a worse result, but in the sense that like I was that close to that life-changing moment again of yeah. like six million. Yeah, that was uh I bet in that moment of your of your career you were like really expecting more from that tournament. And that happened a lot when you get so close. Yeah. Because if you get no cow, you know, in the in the first level, right. well, nothing happened. Yeah. But what about now? And uh in your career Because I think everybody who who has been playing poker for a while, mm-hmm. or no, a decent period of time, everybody has like, you know, we have like kind of doubts. Like, sure, this is for me. This is real for me. You're talking about like a couple of times you were broke and coming from nothing to, yeah, yeah. to this. What was like the human being perspective in that moment in your mind? Like... Should I should I do something else? Yeah, or yeah, hundred percent. I-, I mean, th- this is the thing. This is where we're flawed as creatures, right? Our brain just doesn't operate in a way that comprehends variance very well. So, if you were able to zoom out and look at my sixteen-year uh, career and just stare at the graph, like on a way zoomed-out perspective of overall the sixteen years, you would see a, a relatively steady uptick. And a mathematician could look at that and be like, "Hey, this is a winning player. It's very clear." Uh, and if you zoom in on any given point <laughs> of the graph, it's going to look like an Is that EKG. A coaster, exactly. Yeah, of course. So when we're suffering through the zoomed in portion, it's very difficult to figure out where your emotions lie in all of this, right? It's hard to check how you emotionally feel and take the zoomed out perspective of understanding like, well, you're still profitable. You're going to be fine. You'll land on your feet. And, and the thing is, is in the past, I used to think that like, But it was a work in progress mm-hmm. and you should build that callus and you should dehumanize the game as much as possible, turn it into a game of statistics and uh, just be happy pressing your edge. But I'm starting to come around to the other way because even though I'm, I'm in a way better position than I've ever been, I still suffer through those roller coasters and it's impossible not to acknowledge. So I think it's like far better rather than trying to train your brain out of it, trying to better comprehend Uh, the interplay between the logical mind and the emotional mind Mm -hmm. and just actually allowing yourself to humanize types of things like this where you can just acknowledge out loud like yeah like I lost and that hurts but it's irrational for me to like place blame on the dealer or a player or the deck or that I'm just so unlucky like it becomes toxic when you steer into narratives of This only happens to me. Yeah. Why just me? Right. It's like math doesn't care. Exactly. It's happening to everybody. It's just you're currently experiencing it. And it's hard to get yourself out of that paradigm of I'm the unluckiest person on earth. It's really interesting you talk about this because I'm sure uh, for all the players who can see people playing the amount of money that you use, that you can play in a night yeah. for us 
for from this perspective, we think like, well, these guys are, you know, machines and they're they, they are not even human. They are playing that and it doesn't matter what yeah. what happened with that, you know, five hundred thousand dollars <laughs> on the table. But it's not like that. You're saying the totally opposite. The same that happened maybe in a one three game could happen after a whole career in what levels are you playing usually right now? Yeah, like 300, 600. 300, 600 table. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is like really compatible to, to we, are, we are all humans. Yeah, I think the difference is the maturity level of it all, right? Uh, I, I think the best players are better at rationalizing away the irrational emotion, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's rational to be upset that you lost. It's irrational to think that you lost due to some outside force. Right. <laughs> so I think the good players are, are much better at just analyzing a spot and saying like, okay, my opponent made a mistake there or didn't make a mistake there. And the result is what it is. And we can just like kind of digest that and live with it. But, you know, you still carry the result along with you. Yeah. So what, we, what we're not good at and where I, I think like the human level just stays consistent throughout is the impact of the result. So whenever you lose that life-changing money or you miss out on a life-changing spot or an opportunity passes you by or whatever the case may be, the fallout from that is where even the best in the world are still very human. And they're very much saying like, oh, if I had just won that million-dollar pot, mm -hmm. I wouldn't be in this predicament right now. Yeah, it's like it's, it's hard to separate that moment and that opportunity to do it. Uh, even if it's a million dollar for a person or it's a hundred dollar for another kind of person. Yeah. I think that the relationship with the money and the results is, is really engaging that human being with some reactions that is really hard to control even yeah. when you are a professional poker player. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it takes like just a level of, of uh, I guess, mental toughness mm -hmm. that is probably second to no other career path um, that's a mind sport, right? I think like physical arenas probably have a different level of mental toughness that is comparable. So if you're talking about military or professional athlete or fighter or whatever the case may be, those guys have a level of mental toughness and discipline that is just second to none. But it doesn't necessarily translate on a one-to-one -one, uh, scale because when you're dealing with a mind sport, now you're trying to be mentally tough while your mind is playing tricks on you. And that's hard, right? Because mm -hmm. you're battling between the logical rationale of everything and then the emotional response that's triggered. If you're just in a physical realm, you're allowed to be emotional, right? Correct. You just let it fuel you. Yeah. If you get emotional because some guy talks shit, then that's great. Your next workout's going to be that much harder, right? <laughs> exactly. And if you, if you put a face to the enemy and you start to hate that person... That's great. That's going to keep you locked in and engaged whenever the battle comes to be, right? If you do that in poker, you're going to fail. Yeah. It's because totally different. It's, yeah, it's not, it's it is a personal game. It's it's interpersonal. You are playing against other people, but really you're just playing against math and the mistakes that they're making at that level. So your only job is to identify what about them is fallible and how does that translate into their math? And then you take advantage of it. And now you tell me uh, you're telling me something to make a lot of sense. Nowadays, you can see a lot of professional poker players looking for uh, different strategies to live their life. Yeah. I'm talking about, I can see, you know, top level, uh, the elite meditating mm -hmm. before a tournament, which... 10 years ago when I started playing, it was like, what is this guy doing? Right, this is yeah. guy, you know, yeah. what happened here? But now you're talking uh, about that. What, how important is the game in your mind? And you, you got to control before even sit down in the table. Uh, and you got to train that game too, as strong as you training your strategy game. Yeah. Right? I mean, the thing is, is like, you're not really training your strategy at that point or anything that's related to the game, what you're training is your responses to all mm -hmm. the variables that are going to be presented in front of you. So you're effectively training towards just being even killed and stoic, regardless of the responses. You're accepting that the variables are what they are 
and that the results will vary. And there's nothing you can do to control that. Correct. So the, you the don't have to control. Right. The emphasis has to be on the things that we can't control. Our mechanics, our, our decisions in game to play or not play, to raise or not raise, to fold or not fold, right? We have to go down this path of uh, putting an emphasis on what falls into our lap from a responsibility standpoint versus like what we just have to chalk up and leave open to the world. Yeah. Well, and now... Uh... Do you have any kind of routine before go to the casino or go to a table and poker game? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm pretty diligent in my day-to-day. So um, I'm actually probably a little bit looser with pre-game routine than I am with just morning routine as a whole and things like that. But, okay. Uh, basically, my the best version of myself showing up to the casino is well-rested, uh, already has worked out, already has eaten my meal for the day. I'm, I'm going to be fasting through my sessions. Um, has gone through a prime mind, uh, 15 minute meditation, whatever. And is just in a scenario where like, I'm a clean slate. I don't have any outside stresses weighing on me. I don't have anything that could potentially emotionally trigger me. Um, you know, and, and that's the other big thing to acknowledge is like, you're still a human, right? So there's gonna be other things that have nothing to do with winning and losing pots and nothing to do <laughs> with the people you're playing against. Um, that are kind of illuminating on your mind that can very quickly be triggered or turned on by something someone says or something someone does. And now that emotional response comes out in your play. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden we get overly aggressive or, or we start folding too much because uh, losing another pot is going to prey upon this weak mind state that we've developed. Well, uh, moving a little bit forward now, how how many hours do you put in the game usually at that level? Because yep. I was talking with people who play middle levels mm-hmm. and they put like a two thousand hours a year. Yeah. But when you play higher level than that, how many hours is your or if you have your goal for the year? Yeah. I mean the problem is, is that uh it's out of my hands. Yeah, it's not under control. Yeah, it's 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 really just like when will the game run? When will I get an invite? Uh, okay. Do I still have funding? Like all of these things married together. So it's kind of the perfect storm that I even get to play. Um, so at the high stakes, I think my average is probably like four or five hundred hours a year, okay. which is hard because that means that I'm also suffering great variance. Yeah, right? correct. I'm not able to put in enough volume with these guys, and I have to make every single session really count. And so like downswings are inevitable. But if I go on a 20 session downswing or a 20 buy-in downswing, for most people, that would be like a month. Yeah. For me, that might be a year. A year. Right? It's like in 2015, I went on a $5 million downswing. It was over 18 months, but it was only 22 sessions. Wow. Right? Yeah. So it's like, it's this long drawn out struggle where you don't get to keep hopping back into the arena, right? You have to wait it out. And you wait don't it have out. that opportunity every day. Right. Uh, and what I found, like what I took away most from that experience was a variance happens, but B my game deteriorated as the downswing got worse and worse. And that was a byproduct of me not filling the void in a proper manner. So, you know, since I developed self for why I have an outlet now to study, I have an outlet to create material, to create content. Um, you know, I have the ability to, or I have an incentive, I guess, to go play my old stakes, 5, 10, 10, 20, okay. because it gives me the ability to not only do customer research, correct, but also like draw from content, right? So mm-hmm. like I've been playing online on WSOP.com lately, playing 5, 10, and it's like, I'm going to make videos out of that. So it's important. It's, it's a double-edged uh, sword where it's like, I used to feel like I was wasting my time because I'm not making anywhere close to my hourly in the big game and I could be doing other things. But now I realize like this all compounds into one greater good, I guess, um, which I think for me and most people who've been in the game this long, recognize that like poker isn't the end game. There has to be some sort of lateral move uh, or even vertical move if if you have those types of skills and the ability to to uh, leave the realm completely. And for me, that's, that's what the software platform is, right? It's like, I want to be able to solve problems at a grander scale, far beyond poker. Poker is just like the best testing ground. Yeah, that was my my next topic was like 
now uh, Berkey is moving from has the chips in front of him to have an entire academy mm-hmm. to teach poker or different topics that you're talking about. Yeah. How that happened when you realize like, because uh, nowadays we have a bunch of uh, poker academies yeah. or schools that didn't happen before. Right. It's like, you know, it's, it's they're, they're appearing everywhere now. What is for solve for why? a uh, different concept between them and the other poker academies. Sure. I mean, if I had known that the space would get as competitive as it is today, I probably wouldn't have pulled the trigger. But we started at the end of 2015 and ran our first academy in 2016. Um, and it was something where really it was just run at once and a couple other of the smaller sites at the time, which was like Crush Live Poker and Red Chip. Uh, and... For me, this was all born out of a massive void that I saw in the community. And I still think it exists. I, th- I think we're still the only ones who are really filling it. And that is, uh, rather than teaching to micro strategies, I, I find it to be imperative that instead we teach people how to think better. So the That's whole purpose, great. yeah, the whole purpose is to not feed you something that says like, here are your range charts. Yeah. Here are the sizes you're supposed to use. Here are the PO spits out spit outs for these board textures. Um, if you just follow these mechanics, you'll now be a winning player. Well, if that were true and we gave everybody the same playbook, yeah, no one would win. Right? Correct. But that doesn't mean that everybody's playing perfectly. So there's obviously still an edge to be gained. That edge is gained through rational thought and the ability to problem solve in real time. So for me, like this was all born out of like, me suffering with the community in a way. I never had anybody hold my hand or show me a path or demonstrate to me what proper strategy was. I literally am 100% self-taught. So I wanted to streamline that process for everybody else, but demonstrate to them the value in having self-trust and the ability to think big picture instead of just trying to solve micro issues as they appear. So I wanted to remove the Band-Aid. And I felt like all the training in the community was exactly that, just another mm-hmm. band-aid. And now uh, that is really interesting because it's different than every single other academy that I that I see mm-hmm. in uh, you know the poker world. But it's it's tough to to teach how the community accept that new way to solve problems because it's. It's what poker is about. It's yeah. not just to apply some recipes. Right. It's more to solve different problems in different way against different kind of people. Uh, what is the method that you use to to teach those kind of things? So it's hard to be contrarian. That's that's for it's hard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the problem is, is that you know I often think that maybe I'm not the right guy to lead this crusade, but. The problem is, is that anybody who would take the reins here has to be a contrarian because you have to go against the common theme of everything can be fixed through a solve or through a calculation or whatever the case may be. It's like we should instead be highlighting just how vast this game is, how nuanced it is, how incredibly difficult it is. Um, And our inability as human beings to ever obtain a solve. And I think that I can confidently say that, like, at least in my lifetime, we won't see that happen. Um, Not at the human level. I'm not saying that machine learning won't develop a perfect strategy. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that there will be no way outside of us having uh, an AI bot programmed into us to be able to apply it. So for me, I'm just really trying to sell the narrative that we have this powerful tool in our brains that's so untapped because we're so lazy and complacent to just give in to uh, wanting to get a little bit better, right? People are willing to suffer in very small doses, um, but nobody wants to front load all that suffering. Mm-hmm. So basically, if I told you that, uh, you know, you could, if, if to have all of your wildest dreams completed, right? To all of the money in the world that you could ever want, whatever the case may be, all you had to do was take a slap on the wrist from a million rulers over the course of one day, right? Mm-hmm. Or you could have $100 a day given to you for life, enough to sustain in some capacity, and all you would take is one slap on the wrist 
from one ruler a day. People are going to be more prone. Maybe $100 is too small by comparison to like infinite money. But if you said like enough money to survive, so like say uh, $1,000 a day, whatever would alleviate your current state of suffering, people would be much more prone to just take like the daily slap on the wrist, Mm -hmm. get used to it, and now becomes their new complacency. It's fine. And they're getting a rewards for it, right? And, And life works the exact same way. People are willing to suffer and struggle, but only to a certain extent. They don't want to pour themselves in deep and just like really commit to the suffering so that when they come out the other side, it's it's all paid forward. You know, yeah. you get everything that you were aspiring towards and now you don't have to suffer any longer. And uh, you kind of get to transcend all of this and be a lot more impactful on society as a whole. So we can say like, so for why is more uh, driven to human beings than poker players. For sure. Uh, yes. Well, the, the important qualifier there is, is towards humans, right? So like most of the training is, is very heavily focused on artificial intelligence. Okay. It's very, very, very data-driven. And I think data is great. I have a background in computer science. It's all navigated by data. But even in computer science, none of these programs can be written without the creativity of an algorithm, mm-hmm. right? And most of that is drummed up from the human brain. And I think that like the reason why live poker is so consistently flourishing, like we've seen maybe not growth, but at least sustainability in that arena for a decade now. The reason being is because there's no technology you can bring to the table that gives you a beneficial edge the way that there is if you're firing up two tables online, running a HUD, having your solver on the side so that you can immediately check a spot, whatever the case may be. And by limiting the amount of computing power that we have, it now distills down to a people game. Mm -hmm. And you have to accumulate the information that is being divulged human to human, right? There's a lot of nonverbal communication that's taking place, be it body language, or betting patterns, or all of this unconscious stuff that people do regularly that we can hack. Correct. Right? So you kind of mentioned earlier that poker players uh, are a lot more mindful now and they're doing things like meditating, uh-huh. eating well, and all this stuff. Really what it is, it's a collection of very intelligent people who are interested in optimization. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, whether they're biohacking or they're trying to hack the best strategy for the game that they're involved in, or even... If you take it to another level, uh, you look at people like Liv Bury, who is basically hacking charity, right? They're finding a way through reg to give in the most optimal manner possible where they can have the greatest impact. Correct. So we're, we're effectively like these astute problem solvers who are programmed in a way to strive for optimal. Well, in the human realm or in reality of, of everyday life, a lot of that is done through sheer and utter communication and exchange of ideas and uh even to some level like by like leaning into our biases instead of trying to strip them away like that's that's where the big conflict comes in between solvers and live is the solver has no bias but even when you interpret the solver's readout you have bias so how on earth can we ever communicate between these two things wow that is uh actually explain a lot to to me about what is happening now with the poker community and um what is what was happening like you know 50 years ago mm-hmm. like the poker now changed the image that we have like a poker player uh in the world yeah even even when yeah we play with money in front we play for that and uh but now we have a different impact in uh, not just poker players in different communities that they can sell, but because so for why I'm sure you can use it for poker, it's good, but you can use it for your life. And yeah. you know, the life is 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 solving problems or solving the different situations every day, every second. Exactly. So you gotta solve. Yeah. Whatever you choose to do, you gotta solve it. Right, and you're stuck doing that until you die. There's no way out of it. Right? You don't have any option. Right, whether you're trying to figure out what you want to eat for for dinner or Correct. what kind of impact you want to have on the world, this is still like some some problem set that you're left to deal with on the daily basis. 
That's awesome. Uh, talking about that, bring uh, that bring to my mind the the question that uh, what is nowadays driving you? Like, what is the motivation coming from for these kind of projects? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that like some of it is I I want to be well. I understand at the end of the day that I want to be impactful in some mm. capacity. And I guess the way that I see that is if you're not impactful in your closest community that you're already a part of, then it's going to be very difficult to find reach outside of it. Correct. So a lot of this is just like a passion project of where I want to make great impact on the poker community so that I can somehow springboard off of that and begin to make impact in other larger communities mm -hmm. around the way. Um, you know, poker is a zero-sum game. I don't think that it's shocking to see people enter their 30s who have been playing professionally for a decade plus suddenly want to do something more impactful for the world. Mm -hmm. uh, especially like if they've had success, you know, once wealth is taken care of, you have to fill that void with something else. And quite often it's just going to be giving back in some sort of meaningful capacity. That is interesting to me personally, because I feel that feeling like uh, at, at this point of my life is, is different what I want to share, or what I want to communicate and, and the impact that I want to make for even myself and mm -hmm. my you know surrenders and it's different than 10 years ago yeah you know like maybe when i start playing poker i want to be in the you know highest level of the poker players but nowadays i want to to share and communicate stories behind this yeah and that's that's one of the reasons of this podcast to know more about you know matt burkey human being than that guy playing a bunch of money in a, in a table, yeah. which is great. Yeah, yeah. Don't get me wrong, yeah. but it's more than that. That's the beauty of uh, poker, the freedom that it, it kind of offers. Uh, mm -hmm. Poker players have the ability to kind of traverse Maslow's hierarchy of needs faster than anybody else. So for anyone who's not familiar, uh, Maslow was a, a, a psychologist and he created this pyramid of needs effectively. And the bottom rung of the needs was food, clothing, shelter, basically just like protection in order to survive, right? Okay. And that's where we would like qualify the rat race. This is just earning your means to an end. Um, the next rung would be social acceptance. So this is just integrating yourself into society in some capacity, having people accept you for who you are and having some sort of social exchange. We're, we're social creatures by nature. We can't live in isolation, right? But in today's society, those two steps of Maslow's hierarchy largely are taken care of as long as you're of sound mind, right? So it's, it's not that difficult to find some sort of trajectory where you can make enough money to eat, have a roof over your head. And I'm not trying to dismiss all the people who no, are, no, sure. are jobless or homeless or whatever, but um, more so now than ever, there, have been, there are more independent paths to, I don't even want to say wealth, I just want to say sustainability mm -hmm. than there ever has been in the past, right? You can be an independent contractor for almost anything you're interested in. If you want to be a mechanic, you can do it on your own. If you want to be a plumber, you can do it on your own. If you want to be a podcaster, you just start it, right? The, the barrier of entry for most of this stuff is no longer what it used to be. Now, if you want to be an executive, that's a little bit different. You might need some schooling, right? If you mm -hmm. want to be a stock trader, yeah, you're going to have to go get a finance degree. But that's the uh, same thing with like a doctor, but that's not all professions, right? Mm -hmm. So to get out of the rat race and actually escape the bottom rungs of Maslow's hierarchy, what you actually need is just independence, be it financial or time constraint wise. And poker kind of provides both. So that takes you then more so into the enlightenment phase where you begin to self-actualize. And the next phase is uh, self-acceptance. And this is something that I think like those, those first two rungs and then into the self-acceptance, this is what your 20s are for, mm -hmm. right? You figure out your career path, you figure out how you're going to sustain Uh, a reasonable livelihood. Do you, you think you have a personality? Yeah, you figure out <laughs> your social circle, Correct. who means something to you, who are the people that you will live and die for, etc. And then you begin to figure out who would also uh, reciprocate, right? On the back end of that, you have to start to develop a personality. Who am I? What do I stand for? What am I striving for in life? Uh, you know, do I accept all that? What, what are all my flaws? Like, what am I doing to better myself, right? And eventually, like, you go through the self-actualization process and you come out the other side And now you should be generally in your 30s or maybe into your 40s, whatever. And you kind of say like, okay, I'm very comfortable in my own skin. I know who cares about me and I know who I care about. I know how I'm going to eat. 
I know I'm going to clothe myself <laughs> and where the roof is going to come from over my head. I need to give back to the world. Correct. And that's where like altruism and uh, living for the greater good kind of comes into play. And I think that poker actually provides a path for that in a much more fast tracked way than most other professions because you're just forced to grow up so quickly. Yeah. You know, there are so many like dark sides to poker that kind of get highlighted like the the scamming and the stealing and the the cheating and all the stuff. It happens at a low frequency, but it happens. So we at least have to be aware of it. And that that kind of creates this callus to real world scenarios where it's like, okay, I'm an adult now. I understand what I'm going to do if I get cheated. Okay, I understand right, what right. I'm going to do if I get stolen from, right? And and now we're just solving problems again at the, at its base level. Yeah, somebody told me in one of the podcasts, I think, uh, poker is like a micro micro life. Yeah. Every single session, you you know, you have some ups, you have some downs, you have bad tasting, that mm -hmm. good tasting of the, the, you know, feelings. And that make the poker players grow so quick that you're saying. And I don't know if that's kind of romanticizing poker or, <laughs> <could be. laughs> or if it's uh, kind of like devaluing what life actually is or the complexities of life. But the reason why that parallel makes sense and we can draw it to almost any sort of environment where problem solving is paramount is simply that uh, when, when you're asked to live, you're asked to solve. Correct. And it's the same thing. If you're playing a game, then you're, you're asked to solve for the time. situation. So, you know, we could say baseball is like life. We could say, uh, you know, romance is like life. We, we can find all these parallels. But the whole reason is because the general path that you're pursuing is how can I best optimize? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things in poker, uh, which is like maybe painful for all of us, is when... Uh, Everything is related with money, mm -hmm. and you know maybe you're you you have a a bad day in your regular job nine to five, but it's it's no it doesn't mean like you're losing money. Yeah, that nobody's day. penalizing uh, you for correct. It. Right. That maybe uh, help to grow, and uh, I can I can uh, notice like all your you know your curve like in in mature curve going up, and I was wondering if you have. Let's let's create this scenario. If you have the opportunity to talk with Matt Berkey with, you know, maybe 18 years old. Yeah. And you have kind of 30 seconds to talk with him. Yeah. What would uh, you say? Honestly, I don't know that I would say <laughs> much. Okay. That's uh, good. Just because I wouldn't want to manipulate that process. Okay. I think it's so critical to kind of like find your trajectory out of that lower third of Maslow's hierarchy. And I was always on that path. I never wanted to, to live a nine to five. Now, a better example of that is my nephew who's 20 right now. Oh, who is okay. kind of going through it. That is a scenario. Yeah. And so like, he does have a sense of not wanting to live that nine to five. And he does have a sense of, uh, you know, wanting to live for a greater good and, and, and find it, but he's 20. So he has no insight to the world at all. And money is paramount. So he's willing to sacrifice youth, youth for money. And anytime I have the opportunity to sit him down, I just tell him like, slow down, mm. just slow down. Never sacrifice any absorbent amount of time for money that isn't going to change your life in the long run. Correct. And, and I think that that's like the most important thing for people in their 20s to understand. It's like you have a full decade to fuck up, right? It's like you have 10 years. Correct. Where Literally. you can just fall on your face over and over and over and over again. And you can't do anything so astronomically bad that the rest <laughs> of your life will be ruined outside of like murder. <laughs> Correct. Right. So it's like you always have the opportunity to start back over at 30. That doesn't continually happen. You know, the, the, the time frame shortens as you get into your 30s and 40s and 50s. It's hard to like be starting back at ground zero, having learned no lessons whatsoever at 48 and just yeah. say like, okay, I'm tired of, of being in the nine to five. I'm going to escape Maslow's lower hierarchy of needs and start to self-actualize. It's like, it's great if you do it. It's better at 48 than it is never, but it's a lot harder than yeah. it would be at 24. Sure. Where you could just say, hey, you know what? I really enjoy people. I'm going to go on the road and just travel coast to coast in an RV and interview people. And I'm going to put out a podcast. 
It's like you can just do that. Yeah, you can do it. Right. Yeah, and people make a lot of people make a good life out of that. Yeah. So it's like, you know, if when I had the chance to sit him down and if I had the chance to go back and talk to myself, it would just be a very simple message of like, don't be afraid, slow down and just do whatever it is that you want to do. Wow, that is a great message. Uh, now, when you can see nowadays uh, our world, what is the thing that you dream like, wow, if I have some superpowers, yeah. I would change this in this world? Um, honestly, and this, this is probably just me being so biased to this because I, I view it as such a problem. But I wish that... I wish the entire world's baseline education could be raised. So like if I had one superpower, like I just snap my finger and, and everybody was able to have this happen, it would be that everybody had the capability to reach their fullest potential IQ wise. So I just think like across the board, it's crazy that we haven't unified as a world to educate better. Um, And, uh, you know, obviously there are egregious examples of this, people who still can't read or, that are illiterate, whatever the case may be. But beyond all of that, yeah, the I fact understand. that like logic isn't everybody's first language, mm -hmm. right, is, is just batshit insane to me. I understand that we have hundreds of languages throughout the course of the world and not everybody's going to communicate well, but we can all get behind one simple language that's universal across all nations. And that's math, right? Correct. We can all speak in logical terms. Same language. Yeah. And it's like we can all find this common ground on, on simple logistics of operating in a logical paradigm. And I'm not trying to dehumanize everybody. I understand yeah. that there's, a, there's another side to this, right? There's the emotional paradigm. There's the environmental paradigm. My reality doesn't look like your reality. And it certainly doesn't look like some poor struggling person in Uganda. But... That being said, we can all have different paradigms centered around this logical understanding of how the world works. Wow, great. Uh, well, I, I gotta land this airplane uh, <laughs> because we can talk like longer and sure. longer. Sure. <laughs> uh, but I have some questions. One is, one is, if you could invite someone to this podcast, who would it be? I gotta mention this off air. I, I think yeah. that you should have Christian on because Perfect. if for no other reason, first he's he's a very fun character. Okay. But <laughs> his first language is actually Spanish. So okay. where I get to be your first English podcast, you can take him right back over to the Spanish side. <laughs> That's perfect. We're gonna talk with him. And now I have some quick questions. Okay. Uh they are uh, about what you'd rather. Sure. Uh they're really simple okay. for simple answers. Okay. All right. Do you rather write or read? Write. Not even close. Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook? Twitter. Movies or series? Ha. Uh, this has changed. <laughs> it, it would have been movies in the past. Now it's definitely series. Okay. Sweet or salty? Sweet. All right. Meat or vegan? Definitely meat. I'm, dr <laughs> I'm drinking bone broth right now. <laughs> uh, coffee or tea? Coffee. Beach or mountain? <laughs> this, this is really, really, really close. Um, it's, it's, it's almost a toss-up, but my go-to in total and utter despair would be to go to like a cabin in the woods. So oh, really? Yeah. Cabin in the woods? Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. And that is a, a different environment for me because I'm coming from the Caribbean. So. Yeah, so we, we, we just grew up in opposite terrain. I, I grew that's up in the woods in Pennsylvania. <laughs> Man, this was uh, uh, such an honor have you here. It was a pleasure uh, being here in your amenities of Soul for Why is such a great pleasure too. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, is someone want to communicate with you if you want to share your social media or sure. something? Very welcome. Yeah, it's uh, Berkey11 on all platforms. Uh, that's easy. Yeah, super easy. <laughs> Thank you so much. To, uh, well, and, and this is for me uh, another podcast episode. Thank you so much for everybody who joined us till here. Uh, I hope you subscribe to this channel in the bottom below. Give me your comment in the comment area. And... I just want to say after talking with you, I feel like, wow, we have a lot of our generation. I think you're younger than me, but I, I feel like 
we have a lot of to do. Yeah. And we can do it well. Yeah, I, and, I agree. And, I'm really, I have that hope and we definitely can do it. Thank Agreed. you so much. And for you guys, please be sure to follow your dream and be as happy as you can today. And well, we see you next time. Thank you.